Howdy, folks, and welcome to A Green Way Forward. I'm your co-host, David Cobb, joined by co-host Michael O'Neill in New York. I'm in California. This is the program weekly where we take a look at issues, ideas, and concepts, but specifically through the lens of the Green Party. On this show, we're literally going to talk about how to talk. Now, to be clear, we're going to talk about how to engage constructive debate. Uh, and for me, it's important to understand that constructive debate is all about establishing conditions that encourage the free exchange, discussion, and development of ideas and eliminate the conditions that prevent potentially useful ideas from getting a fair hearing and eliminate the conditions that allow mediocre ones to be implemented. Michael, I'm going to turn it over to you and ask, have you had the experience that I have had, which is in the Green Party, we have lots of debate, but frankly, it often doesn't feel constructive. Absolutely. And I think that, uh, sadly, is broader than just a problem for the Green Party. I think it is a problem for the left and progressives generally. And I think that many of us, like we didn't set out to be great rhetoricians or great orders. We got involved in the Green Party or we got involved in socialist or progressive or lefty politics because we cared passionately about an issue. But and, and maybe as radicals, we're even suspicious of some of the more classic tools and institutions that have accompanied political life for centuries or millennia. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up, Michael, because uh, I actually uh, in high school was a championship debater myself. Uh, as you know, I was a pretty successful trial lawyer, uh, really learned a lot of the art of the debate. But when you talk about being suspicious of, quote, classical debate and that entire format, I can tell you that in high school debate at the championship level now, there is an entire a group of young, incredibly creative, uh, thoughtful, and uh, incredibly gifted black debaters who literally go in and spend their entire uh, uh, time deconstructing the idea of debate as a way uh, to actually get to ideas. So that what you described is actually happening, but I'm going to actually push back and say, I do believe that for anyone on the progressive left and most especially, I think, for Greens, it is important that we actually develop the ability uh, to engage in uh, a fierce debate and still do it respectfully because as organizers, there's it's just the only way to actually win a mass movement. So that's how I would react to what I just heard from you. Right. And I think that if we have mastery over some of the basic tools and practices of debate, then as as radical people who are looking to reconstruct society, then we can pick and choose what elements of debate that we want to carry forward, in which we want to throw out, in which ones that we just need to tweak. Right. I mean, Education, as it is taught in many schools, is a it has many repressive qualities and tendencies. But through decades of 
creative labor and, and genius within left-wing movements, we have things like popular education and peer-to-peer -peer education and radical education, where we're not just throwing the entire thing out the window, but we are finding out how to incorporate them into methodologies that eliminate or at least reduce hierarchy and attempt to strip out some of the legacies of oppression and exploitation. But first, well, let's dive into that. But before we do, I want to remind viewers on Facebook that uh, please remember to share this on your own page or any page that you manage. If you're listening to us on a podcast, thank you for that. And please share this podcast uh, on your own social media and or uh, email list as we continue to build this movement and the audience. And a reminder that if you sign up at a greenwayforward.org, uh, we'll be in touch with you. That, uh, that, that platform continues to grow. So I think Michael, uh, and, and lastly, I want to remind folks who are listening live, watching live, if you would like to make a comment, ask a question or participate, please do so in the comments. And Michael will strive as co-host to also uh, garner those uh, and bring them up as he finds them of interest. So, Michael, to set the tone, you know, I know that there are uh, classically nine principles of constructive debate. And the very first one is uh, to engage in professional communication. Now, some folks think that professionalism is white folks yet. But what I would say is what I think that we're talking about is to avoid insulting condescending uh, and uh, refrain from personal language or attacks. Uh, and to me, this is just like straight up respect, right? Like mm -hmm. you can't, if you're trying to engage somebody in discourse, you can't be a jerk. Right. I think that frequently, even when we're talking to people that we already have a positive relationship with, we sometimes resort to personal attacks or we feel personally attacked because we are not able to attend to the actual um, or we don't even identify the thing that we actually disagree about <laughs> and we don't actually we're not able to articulate what are the claims that we're making and what are the evidence that we're pointing to to back up those claims. And so if you, if you don't really know what your point of disagreement is, and you're not really clear on what you're claiming to be true, and you're not really explaining why you think those things are true, then kind of the only thing left to you is to either go after the other person, or you feel like the other person's going after you. And I think the subtext of a lot of the debates that happen, and I use the term debate loosely, on social media the subtext of the of the argument is if you don't agree with me you're a bad person and and when that is the subtext like then then it, it makes sense that people like fight with tooth and claw because they're so ego invested in whatever position that they're holding and they feel like their their very essence as a good person or a righteous activist is being attacked or undermined by this person who disagrees with them you know, you, I think you make a very important point, Michael, and uh, it's really, uh, you know, two of the other principles of debate. Uh, one is critical analysis uh, and synthesis and rhetorical skill uh, is a key to actually engaging in that constructive debate. And the other is to focus on the argument itself and actually understanding the other argument or the other side. 
the reason I really want to uh, focus here is to really pick up on what I heard you say, uh, and that is the level of defensiveness because people get ego invested. And look, I'm not saying I'm great at it, but I can tell you this. Anytime someone offers me a critique or a criticism, whether it's a woman uh, critiquing me for uh, you know sexist uh, uh, behavior, whether it's a person of color critiquing me for engaging in white skin privilege or otherwise uh, uh, manifesting unthought uh, or, 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 or white supremacy in an unthoughtful way, uh, or a, a, a you know. Uh, uh, non-gender conforming person, anytime I get a critique like that, Michael, the technique that I use is to immediately remind myself, get grounded, don't get defensive. Like, listen to what is being told because number one, I might learn something. You know, I, I say all the time, Michael, that, you know, if I am engaging in sexist or racist or, uh, or transphobic behavior, uh, I'm not doing it on purpose. So if I'm giving giving a critique, I should actually listen to see if I can learn something. Now, that doesn't mean that the person is right. Right. I might actually go through the the self-reflection and analysis and say, you know what? Actually, uh, uh, I disagree with them. But it is natural that uh, if anybody is uh, receiving critique to get defensive because we're a good person. Here's the key, Michael. I always start with, I know I'm a good person. That's mm-hmm. the base. I don't have to, I don't have to prove that to anybody. If I'm getting a critique, I need to listen to see if I can learn something. I don't know if that's helpful, but that's a, a practice that I engage in. I think it is helpful and it's, it's helps kind of balance out some of the more technical aspects of debate that we're talking about. Now, I unfortunately was not a champion uh, debater in high school, uh, but I've, have been recently looking into some different resources because I've just been naturally curious about this. And one resource I'd like to point our viewers and listeners to is a series called The Art of Debate by Professor Jared Atchison. And you likely can get his course on debate for free through your local public library. That's how I've been listening uh, to it is through the Hoopla app that is you know part of the Onondaga County Library here in Syracuse. And there's other places or other ways that you can listen to it as well. It's on Audible. It's on The Great Courses. Uh, that's, I think, where it originated from. And so he's a, a very effective pre- presenter, and he talks about the about the context of, like, well, when should you have a debate and why should you debate? And the thing that he comes back to is that it should be about trying to refine your ideas and refine your knowledge. And by your, he's referring to whatever collective group that you're a part of. And so it's not about, I'm trying to defeat you in debate because I'm a better person than you, or I'm trying to position myself above you. It's that we have a shared understanding that we have a goal, either in terms of the effectiveness of our campaign or our organization, and we want to have the best information and the best conclusions possible as we go about making our strategy or just deciding on what to do. And if you focus on that, that at the end of the day, we we have a shared goal and focus here, then maybe that takes some of the pressure off of the, the emotional ego investment side of things. You know, that, again, an incredibly good point. And thanks for that resource. I'll confess I don't know it, but uh, if you'll drop it in the comments, Michael, uh, I'll make it a point to go and look at it. It would encourage our viewers and listeners uh, to check into that as well. 
I can tell you this, that the, this notion of, uh, of not getting defensive is also, we, what we need to remember is that when we are engaging in debate, if we're actually trying to come to good, like internally, if, if, like, let's just use the Green Party as an example. If we're trying to debate an internal policy, like, for example, whether there should be dues in the party or not, right? Uh, that's something I know that the, that many people are debating now. I personally completely support the idea of dues and I could lay out the reasons why, but I do want to point out that I'm not going to turn a green comrade and friend into an enemy simply because they disagree with me on whether dues should be in the party. And this is something that I really want to push myself and every Green Party organizer and every eco-socialist, whether you're in the Green Party or not, or any lefty. And that is this, that the ability to discern the difference between a core principle and a tactical disagreement, right? Like you can have tactical disagreements with people that are on your team and on your side, uh, without turning them into your enemy. And I think this is part of the point you were making earlier, Michael, when you talk about we get into this because we're passionate about social change and we are kind of taught in our experiences to the barricades and anybody who doesn't agree with us is the enemy. And that thinking internally is toxic. Absolutely. So I would like to take this topic and use it to kind of run through some of the like super basic 101 level functions of, of like a classic debate. And what I'd like to do is try to frame it in those ways. And, and then David, you can let me know when I'm going off course or, or you can, we can expand upon it in the time that we have. So the first thing is in, in debate is like, what is our proposition? The proposition is the thing. What are we deciding? So the proposition in this case is should the green part of the United States have a membership dues program? Right. And it's important when you have a proposition that you make it just the right size. So you're not getting into maybe in this case, like it should be this amount of money per month and it should be routed in this way through the states or around the states or um, that element. It's when you're making a decision as an organization, start from square one, whatever that means. Now another way. Well, that's right. Yeah. Well, I want to stop for stop you for a moment because sure. you've actually uh, this is seems super simple, and if you already understand that, it actually is simple, but it can actually be quite complex because what you're talking about is the proposition or what you're going to debate about has to actually have a yes no answer, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in classical debate, and should the Green Party of the United States institute a membership due structure? lends itself to yes, no. How to implement it, the plan would come into place after a decision on yes or no. So actually, I think that in terms of classical debate, you've really set an important parameter around, and that is defining what you're debating about. Right. And for our purposes, since we are trying to run a political party and not necessarily a debate club, I think that the the essence here is that we want have a debate that's actionable and probably the clearest and easiest way to make it actionable is to make it yes or no. Right. And, and in the, in, in parliamentary structure, right. We have a national committee that's a voting body. They're going to vote yes or no 
on whether or not to enact a national due structure. So this makes sense. So um, now if, if the if the debate veers into a proposal of anyone who supports a national dues program is inherently classist and wants to exclude poor people from the party, that's a problematic proposition. And likewise, <laughs> if someone proposes, well, anyone who refutes the idea of a national dues structure is not serious about building the party and is just a dilettante and it secretly is trying to undermine the future of the Green Party. Also not a helpful proposition to debate. Right. And in fact, not only not a helpful proposition to debate, I would argue, Michael, those are not even good arguments to make in the course of debating the dues because you have, in the way that you've just done it, you have introduced the kind of subjective emotion, hypercharged kind of language. You can make the argument that that dues are uh, inherently unfair to poor and working people without using some of the insulting degrading language that you used, just as you can make the argument that without dues, you can't actually build an institution capable of taking on the corporate parties of the Democratic or Republican parties without actually resorting to that same kind of insulting language. Right. Now, uh, some other elements of debate that are important to keep in mind is agency. So the people who are having this debate or this conversation are they actually in a position to enact this thing that's being debated? Or if they're not, then they need to frame their debate in such a way that at least it is targeted towards the people who have agency in making this decision or not. Otherwise, like you're just, you might as well be debating, debating like Harry Potter fan fiction. Well, I mean, I think that, or having a debate on Facebook, by the way, right? Uh, which is to say you never actually have a real debate on Facebook. All you're doing right. is posturing. And that means me too, right? Like, mm-hmm. so, so let's tease this out a bit. And, and I appreciate how you brought in the national committee, the Green Party of the United States. You and I are both national delegates. Uh, we're both active in our, our state parties. We're active in our, our local parties. So it is appropriate to debate internally the Green Party of Humboldt County, the Green Party of California, and the Green Party of the United States for things to do, uh, because they are actionable. You have agency, as you say, you know, but, but this, I like, and so let's remember the difference between an internal debate for a party apparatus to decide what to do and how to do it versus the idea of trying to persuade people on Facebook, social media, or at your local pool hall or bowling alley. Cause those are different things. And I'll take this moment to point out. A debate proposition has a yes-no answer, as we've already talked about, and it's actionable. If I'm having a conversation in a pool hall or a bowling alley, I usually don't, quote, debate. What I do is try to listen to other people and either ask a good question to get them to reconsider something or to inspire them to think of something else by telling a good story that actually uh, makes them think that what uh, the way I want them to think. Because I'll tell you, Michael, I have come to the realization that I never or very, very rarely persuade anybody of anything because people will think what they're going to think. The best, most effective way for me to communicate is to try to get within their frame 
Think about how they're thinking about something and ask a good question or tell a good story that is compelling to them. That sounds really powerful. And I would love to do a future episode talking about beer hall socialism or pub socialism or, or, you know, coffee house Plus, organizing. It would mean we could do it at a bar, which is, you know, not a bad thing. We have the technology, David. <laughs> so uh, absolutely. And, and another thing that I wanted to point up that you reminded me of is that if you go through the, the effort of, of learning elements of, of classical debate, don't use those as a cudgel against other people saying, oh, well, you know, you framed your proposition this way and uh, well, you know, your, your claim and your argument and your warrant. Like, don't don't use it as a kind of privileged discourse to to attack people's legitimacy. That's that's the opposite of what we're trying to advocate here. No, that's right. And 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 I actually do appreciate that you circled back on this. Right. Because remember when I talked about how there were these brilliant young black debaters who were actually going into debate tournaments and just excoriating the entire structure of debate. And part of the reason they're doing it is because they have a critique about how it's actually being used. So uh, I think that uh, it is also important to recognize that we do, in fact, live in a society of white supremacy, uh, of empire, of patriarchy, and of capitalism. Uh, and so we need to engage our debate in respectful, thoughtful ways that recognize that all these other structures and systems are still in place. And so it's not that as a white person, I have to just shut up anytime a person of color begins to talk. Uh, but it, what it does mean is I have to be hyper vigilant uh, about recognizing that I might be playing out uh, unintentionally racist or uh, unintentionally engaging in some white skin privilege without really noticing it. Uh, but it doesn't mean that I can't debate a person of color and that I can't have a different idea or different, uh, draw a different conclusion. Uh, so this is an important point that you're making. Thanks. And uh, you know, we, we want to talk about ranked choice voting being under attack in Maine. Uh, but uh, before we, we close off this kind of debate topic for now, just a couple points I want to uh, leave people with and, and get your feedback on, David, is in you know, the essence of an argument generally, uh, I'm, of course, I think everyone is reminded of the Monty Python sketch where the man walks <laughs> into the argument office and says, hello, I want to have an argument and or, or I want to learn how to argue. And the and the guy behind the desk answers, no, you don't. And says, no, I said, yeah, I want to learn how to argument. I want to be better at rhetoric. And no, you don't. That's all useless. And so an argument, if, it, if you're just taking the opposite perspective of whatever someone is saying, that's not a very productive argument. Um, but there, there is a kind of an anatomy of an argument that can be useful. And, and boy, if you start training your ear to hear this kind of thing on uh, news radio and sports talk radio or on MSNBC or, or Pacifica radio, whatever, you start to hear these things, which is um, as someone is making an argument, they are going to have claims, which is something that they are asserting about the world. And then they're going to cite evidence for these claims, which is hopefully something that is like factually agreeable that we can point to and say, yes, um, you know, we agree that, that this is, this evidence is true. But then there's a third piece that is frequently overlooked and that's the warrant. 
And the warrant is is the statement that says, because this evidence is true, therefore it backs up my claim. And right. And I think, it's also known yeah. as reasoning uh, uh, or, or and I think that this is an important idea. So there's deductive and inductive arguments. Mm-hmm. There's also the soundness or reasoning uh, or the warrant associated with it. And I actually think that uh, uh, everybody, every human being would actually benefit greatly uh, from some basic logic uh, courses and actually studying how you know what you know. Uh, and to actually start to learn some of the, the common fallacies and non-arguments, uh, that are used all the time. Uh, cause I think actually that would be helpful. And I can't tell you the, how frequently, uh, I can actually find online, especially people engaging in, uh, in, in logical fallacies. And I think honestly, the right wing are doing it on purpose. Sure. And I mean, boy, we do not have time for to get into all the logical fallacies, which I mean, I, I think logical fallacies have become a bit of a of a bugbear in social media. It's a bit of a like we've become obsessed a bit about sort of identifying logical fallacies and, and for good reason, in many cases, because they are so toxic. I think that uh, a lot of the trouble that we run into is either we we don't agree that the evidence is actually factually evidence, right? And this is what uh, Trump is so masterful at eroding in terms of fake news, right? That That's like become the watchword of like, well, this thing that you claim is factually true, actually, that's not even a fact. So I don't have to refute it. So it's not a fact. And, and then also, I think where we run a foul is confusing a claim with evidence and then just completely overlooking that there needs to be some connective tissue between the two um, and, and get, getting into the actual reasoning process that, that you mentioned. Folks, you're watching and or listening to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb, joined by co-host Michael O'Neill. This is the program where we take a look at issues, ideas, and concepts, but specifically through the lens of the Green Party, we are, Michael and I are both, uh, avowed, un- uh, unapologetic eco-socialists working within the Green Party, trying to strengthen the Green Party, but we are more committed to restructuring society than we are to the capital G next to somebody's name. Uh, Michael, I do want to, uh, shift us into a conversation around ranked choice voting and the fact that it is under attack again in Maine. And I'm going to invite you to remind our audience about why Maine and ranked choice voting is so important uh, and how it's under attack. Take it away, Michael. Well, uh, if you tuned in last week, you might recall that the Republican in the congressional race for District 2 in the state of Maine. He he won the first uh, round of votes in the ranked choice voting election that they held for Congress. First ever ranked choice voting election in the United States, which is amazing. And so well, many... State, so for, for Congress. I mean, we've oh, done sorry. Lots yes, of that, that's what I meant. Yeah. Sorry. For Congress, for a federal office. First time that we've had ranked choice voting or RCV. So, uh, yes, he, he won the first round of, of votes, but in, he did not win a majority of votes. And that's key 
He had a plurality of the first round, but not a majority. And in ranked choice so, voting. So if I can, just to push back a bit, mm-hmm. he got the most votes or he got a plurality. He didn't actually win yes. because Absolutely. the winning threshold is a majority. Exactly. Yes. And so in RCV, ranked choice voting, we want the winner of the election to actually have a majority of votes. So if you don't have someone with a majority in of the first place votes as people ranked their candidate preferences on the ballot, then you, then you eliminate the candidate in last place and the votes for that candidate are allocated to the other candidates based on the voters who ranked those other candidates as second place. So after subsequent rounds of voting or of, of counting, I should say tabulation, Then it ended up being the Democrat who actually got a majority of votes and won the election. Well, we shared some uh, right wing tears on this uh, live stream last week of the letter to the editor talking about how, um, you know, the liberal southern Maine voters had, uh, you know, enforce the system on them and that uh, they're overriding the majority of second district voters when in fact it wasn't the majority of second district voters who voted for the Republican. The majority of them voted for the other guy. So now we have two developments here. The first is that Bruce Poliquin, the Republican in question, is actually taking this election to court. So whenever, you know, Republicans try to put themselves forward as the law and order candidates, they don't care about the law, right? They only care about the law when it's keeping down poor people or or oppressing uh, people of who are not white or oppressing really anyone who is um, not white, straight look, male. The, the reality is that the Republican Party, uh, look, we have to be clear about something that there are really two Republican parties broadly in this moment of uh, realignment. There's the corporate Republican party Mm -hmm. and the fascist Republican party. But at the core, uh, like they don't, I don't believe that either the leadership of either the democratic or the Republican party actually cares about anything except for raw power. Sure. Absolutely. So this, so this, uh, candidate is, uh, taking the battle over ranked choice voting to court. And by the way, this ranked choice voting in Maine, uh, it was instituted by popular referendum and it was then, uh, challenged by the state legislature. How many times? By the Democrats. By the Democrats in the state legislature, right? And, and the people still were able to get it through. And so just all praise to the RCV uh, supporters and activists and organizers in Maine who are blazing this trail. So we've, uh, so Poliquin says it's unconstitutional for Maine to allow voters to rank all candidates from first to last on the ballot. And so this is going to drag on for at least a few weeks and that briefs will be filed Wednesday uh, and December 2nd. And we'll have updates from this case as it happens. Because this is a, a this is the acid test Right. For ranked choice voting, we need to make sure that this is upheld uh, for federal elections in the court, because we would like to see single transferable vote and ideally proportional representation as the law of the land across the country. 
Well, and I would argue that ultimately we can't have electoral democracy unless we have proportional representation. Uh, uh, there's actually no way that you can actually make and implement decisions based on majority rule unless there is ultimately proportional representation. So everybody has a seat at the table. Uh, but that's a longer, deeper argument. I do think that it's worth pointing out the hypocrisy of the Republican Party who is simply about a result orientation and, and the fact that they're starting to turn, try to turn this into some sort of left wing conspiracy when it's worth pointing out that the idea of preferential voting and rank choice voting is used by uh, institutions like the college Heisman Trophy winner in foot college football. It's used by Major League Baseball to choose the most valuable player. It's used by the Academy Awards. Uh, oh, and it's used by that notorious left-wing organization known as the Utah Republican Party. So let's just really be clear that it's math, right? Right. It's just math. And the idea that uh, the 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 Republican is now taking ranked choice voting to court in Maine is actually a very dangerous precedent. If we can't win and hold on to this historic victory for something, frankly, as simple as ranked choice voting, then we're in trouble. Absolutely. And uh, I think also the, the National Football League even uses ranked choice voting for their um, Hall of Fame votes. Pretty no, sure. that's right. Yeah, that's another one. I forgot to mention that. Oh, and by the way, the American Political Science Association uses ranked choice voting to elect its internal members. So, you know, you would think that the American Political Science Association might know a thing or two about how the, the math associated with the elections would make the most sense. Right. So the the logic, uh, the tortured logic that some of these uh, folks are using to oppose ranked choice voting is that it's giving people the ability to vote more than once. And <laughs> so we, we, we had a letter to the editor last week. Uh, this is an op-ed I'm looking at from Scott K. Fish, who is the communications staffer for the Maine Senate and House Republican caucuses. And he was communications director for Senate President Kevin Ray in the state Senate there. So he argues that, um, let's see, uh, he talks about one man, one vote, which already is super normative <laughs> oh, I, I, and problematic. sexist right. comment to exactly. begin with. So yes. good job right off, yeah. the, uh, off the bat. Right. The longstanding policy of one man, one vote was turned upside down. Uh, and because uh, if basically they're arguing that, that there are, Conservatives or right-wingers in the state only had one candidate to vote for, I guess. <laughs> and because you had maybe a, a you know, third-party par- third candidate or a Green Party candidate, and, and those voters then ranked the Democrat as their second choice, that those people on that part of the ideological side of the spectrum got a chance to vote more than once. But... But the thing that they keep neglecting over and over is that this Republican did not get a majority of votes in the district. And they can't get around that. They're so stuck on plurality as being the end-all, be-all. The idea that um, you can get elected without a majority of votes, uh, 
unfortunately, it is very ingrained in our in our political system. So, Michael O'Neill, I'm going to ask you an honest question. Do you think uh, that the Republican Party in Maine really is missing the point? Or do you think that they are merely ignoring it in order to get the result that they want? Well, I think they are making a case that could be adopted by folks who maybe have not paid as much attention to ranked choice voting as you or I have, right? Fair that, enough. Uh, and Thanks. so whether or not they believe it's true, it, we still need to, to pull it apart because there are folks who, you know, they, they just, they're not as familiar with the issue and they might find that argument persuasive. Well, that's fair. And that's the reason that, that political education is so important. And I'll just remind uh, viewers that ranked choice voting actually was voted on by the citizen or by the at least the registered voters of Maine. And it was approved and it was litigated uh, before it went forward and it got put on the ballot by a citizen's initiative process. So in terms of electoral processes, uh, I would argue that ranked choice voting in Maine has actually had more vetting by the public uh, than well than anything, including first past the post, winner take all, because we just inherit that. Uh, very rarely has has that been instituted as a result of an affirmative action on the part of an engaged citizenry. Right. And unfortunately, this is where we get into the intensely undemocratic aspect of our or one of the many intensely undemocratic aspects of our society is that this is going to go to a judge. And so a we'll we have a very ideologically driven court system. And so what uh what the judge evaluates ranked choice voting to be. I mean, as you said, this has already been litigated and this candidate knew what the counting process was going to be before he started running for office and presumably at least when he started running for office. And so it's only after he has lost the election that he's crying foul and saying that this ranked choice voting process is unfair or unconstitutional. So uh, this is just, conservative right-wing snowflake tears up and down. Yes. Yeah. So. It, yeah. Look, uh, this, this has been a great conversation, Michael, but I'm looking at the time and I realize that we are in fact running out of time. I do want to ask, were there any comments or questions uh, on the live stream that you think are worthy of uh, that you want to comment on? Well, thank you for that invitation, David. You read my mind. And I think that, uh, yeah, we actually do have some great comments that I want to bring up here. Um, Pete Sound says, if plurality is upheld, would RCV be necessary? I'm not sure what he's asking there, but just that if, if you only have a plurality but not a majority of votes, then you go to the next right. And, and I think that what he's asking, maybe because I've like as a lawyer, I've actually uh, researched some of this. There are um, uh, there is an argument uh, that uh, plurality uh, is used in some election codes. But the point mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. the ranked choice voting initiative actually defined winning uh, as uh, a majority winner. So that actually that argument 
would not hold water in the state of Maine. And unless the, the Supreme Court of Maine held that it was somehow unconstitutional to allow preferential voting, which would be the height of, of judicial overreach. Sure. So Carlos says, don't kid yourselves. The DNC is just as bad slash corrupt as the GOP. Um, and in a many ways, they are absolutely as corrupt as, as the Republican Party. Um, the reason I brought up the whole law and order thing is because Republicans do tend to stump that so much. And I'm always reminded of Corey Robbins inside the reactionary mind where he talks about how the the only connecting thread of the reactionary or right wing movements across the decades or centuries is the oppression of people who have less power than them. And they'll go back and forth on big government or small government or states rights or, or national rights or and basically they'll take any line of argument so long as they uh, keep suppressing that um, radical, you know, populist liberatory project um, that we, we are in favor of. So uh, sorry for that little. Uh, no, look, I, there. I actually, Carlos, I appreciate your point and, uh, and I, I completely agree with you. The Democratic National Committee and the leadership of the Democratic Party are absolutely uh, part of the problem and are just as bad as the Republican National Committee. One of the things that I often do, though, is to remind myself and others, and that is that there is a difference between the corporate leadership and the neoliberals who run the Democratic Party and rank-and-file Democrats. In my experience, at least in my community, many rank-and-file uh, Democrats are as progressive and left as any Green I've ever met, uh, but they have tactically decided that they want to stay in the Democratic Party. Now, I disagree with them. I think they're making a huge mistake tactically. But again, I'm not going to turn them into my enemy because I have a tactical disagreement with somebody I otherwise agree with. But I do want to just underscore the leadership of the Democratic Party is part of the problem. Absolutely. Just getting back to the comments before we close out. Joe says, main listener slash viewer here. We voted for RCV twice. It won with 52% in 2016. Then again in June of this year with 53% voting for it. Um, Which, by the way, for you math geeks out there will recognize that's a majority. Absolutely. And uh, on the question of dues, uh, one uh, commenter mentioned that... uh, you, you would, if, if you're asking people to, or if you're asking a, an organizational body to adopt a dues structure, it probably would be a good idea to include in that some aspects of the plan of what the dues structure would be. Oh, yes. Right? I, mean, look, so remember, I, I, kind of, I muddied that earlier. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, and because uh, what we were doing was talking about classical debate format versus uh, actual application of it. And I think uh, your your commenter or our commenter makes a very good point. And I'll tell you, Michael, it occurs to me and thank you uh, to the to that person, whoever they were. But it occurs to me, I actually would like to find somebody who is strongly in support of dues and somebody who is against dues and actually use our program to have that conversation. Yeah, I think that would be a worthwhile episode. And just a final comment from Steve, who says, love the Monty Python reference. The Democratic Party is a dead parrot. (laughs) Fantastic. Uh, I thought that we were going to go 
Uh, I thought Steve might go with the People's Judean Front versus the People's Front of Judea, uh, but instead he went with the Dead Parrot. So uh, both the Dead Parrot, though, definitely a winner. Absolutely. Well, folks, uh, uh, this is David Cobb and co-host Michael O'Neill. We want to thank you for tuning in and remind you, please go to the website agreenwayforward.org and sign up. And please use the comment section to recommend other uh, topics for us to discuss. Uh, and we are going to sometime uh, very soon start to roll out a survey to figure out how much uh, interviewing should we do? Do you prefer this kind of format? So uh, I, we're teasing a little bit the idea that we are experimenting uh, with this uh, program called the Green Way Forward. Uh, we are thinking about different ways to make it useful for organizers and other eco-socialists, and especially those eco-socialists uh, and folks who are within the Green Party. So, Mike O'Neill, any final thoughts? I just want to thank everyone for tuning in. And please do sign up at greenwayforward.org for our mailing list so you can get updates on future episodes. All right, folks. So thank you for uh, joining. Thank you, Michael O'Neill, for both co-hosting and handling the comment section and doing technical work. So that's fantastic. Remember, folks, keep on keeping on. Can't stop. Won't stop. Peace. A Green Way Forward is produced by David Cobb and Michael O'Neill. Go to agreenwayforward.org for links to our podcast feed and iTunes subscription, plus more ways to listen. Our live stream is graciously hosted by the official Dr. Jill Stein Facebook page on Monday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. The music for this episode is Keep Sit Real by Player 2, available under a Creative Commons license from the Free Music Archive.